This is a message by Pastor Mark Fox at Antioch Community Church in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about the church, go to antiochchurchnc.org. Good morning. I'd like to welcome any visitors we have to Antioch this morning. Um, our scripture this morning is going to be in First uh, Peter, uh, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Welcome to everyone who's here with us personally and those who are online with us. A big thank you goes to Janet Phillips and Carrie Fox who are working on and have been working on some new artwork for this new series. And so the slides will represent their work and there's a a big framed picture in the foyer that will represent their work and eventually we'll have these two banners replaced by uh, similar work that will illustrate 1 Peter. So we're thankful for People who have those kinds of gifts, amen? Also thankful for Brent Walker. He's a deep well. I don't know if you've met Brent. Have him over for dinner sometime. Bring, let him bring his wife too because she's a deep well as well. Uh, it's a lot of wells. But Brent gave a great word this morning in men's breakfast. I know that I say this a lot, but this is must-hear radio, okay? So download. If you weren't for, here for the men's breakfast, or even if you were, download it listen to it again. Uh, it's, he, he did a, a deep dive in the fifth commandment, which is what? There you go. Honor your father and your mother. Why should we honor our father and our mother? And how does that make an impact on us, our parents, the society at large, even civilization? Brent did a great job, brother. It was excellent. So we will spend the next 18 weeks or so in the book of 1 Peter, which I love Edmund Clowney calls a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. That would be us. He's writing Peter in the first century is writing to exiles in the first century and in the 21st century. These are pilgrims. These are displaced peoples. These are temporary residents. These are people who belong to Christ and another world. We are citizens of heaven, and so we are in between two worlds, making our way through this world to the next. So let's look at this greeting today under two main points because this is so appropriate for us. This book is what we need right now, I believe, in this culture. We'll get into that in a moment. Two main points today, basically just the writer, who's the writer, and who are the readers. So Peter needs no introduction, right? To anyone who has studied the word at all, you know who Peter is. I mean, we could go back and we could spend an hour this morning and just barely touch on the verses in the Gospels that refer to Peter. And, of course, we could look at uh, the book of, book of Acts, which was at first about Peter and his ministry, and then it became about Paul and his ministry. But, but we don't need to do that. I, I encourage you to do that if you've never done it. Especially look at the Gospel of Mark. Because remember, John Mark, who was on that first missionary journey with Paul and and Barnabas didn't quite make it. He was a mama's boy. He had to go back home. He eventually became a tough young man who served Paul in the ministry, but also was a companion to Peter, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so we really call it the Gospel of Peter 
Because Peter told Mark, oh, yeah, this is what happened. You know, his, here's, where, here's where Jesus healed the, the blind man. And he t- told Mark the story, and he wrote it down. So, so you can learn a lot about Peter from that gospel especially, but all four, of course. So most of the readers of this letter, when it was sent out to these places that uh, Jason named, most of the readers either knew Peter personally because he had traveled to those places, and we don't know uh, this for sure or when he went or, or if he went, or that at least they knew him by reputation. He was not a stranger. They didn't get this letter and go, who's this Peter guy? What is this? You know. So that's why all he had to say uh, was his, his title. But I would suggest that they had, they had heard the stories of his walk with Jesus. They had heard the story of Peter's biggest shame, right, when he betrayed Jesus at, Jesus, at the Lord's trial. But they had heard the story of Peter being restored to ministry and be call, being called a, a shepherd of the sheep. In, in John 20, when Jesus, or 21, when Jesus met him on that beach, you know, in front of that charcoal fire and said, you love me, Peter, you know that. And so they heard those stories. They knew, they knew who this guy was. But I would suggest that they learned a lot more about Peter from this letter as to who he was and what he believed. And, and we will as well. We will learn a lot about Peter. I, I would suggest that this book is significant because the person that Peter is calling us to be in every relationship we have is described in this book. It's written to encourage those who suffer as strangers in a strange world, and we all, we all do, to show us how to respond humbly to suffering. Huge theme of suffering in this book. How do we respond humbly to suffering, and how do we allow the Lord to refine us by it? Suffering is not accidental. Suffering is not for nothing. Suffering is redemptive. It's part of God's plan for us to grow in Him, to glorify Him, just like Jesus did by the greatest suffering that's ever happened in the world. You know, I'm not there yet. Humble in suffering, refined by suffering, I'm not there yet. I, I, I want to grow in, in this 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 status as, as I do want you to. So I'm going to grow along with you as we go through this book, and we will learn how to be more like that. I think this book is relevant because, listen, we live in a world that is increasingly like the world to which Peter was writing and where Peter was living. How does Peter identify himself? Well, he calls himself Peter. He doesn't give his birth name right? Jesus changed his name. He said, no, you're not going to be Simon anymore. Simon means a reed. A reed is something that you find in the water, and it's easily blown about by every wind that comes along, easily toppled over. He said, no, you're not going to be Simon. You're going to be Cephas or Cephas, you might say, or Peter the rock. That's who you are. He is the rock. He's steady, He's strong in his resolve to serve Christ to the end by the grace of God. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, he doesn't have to defend his apostleship, but he was an apostle. And we're not going to do a deep dive in apostleship, but the apostles were men who had been with Christ from, from the beginning of his ministry. And they saw him. They saw him work his miracles and, and then, of course, Peter was an, an, an apostle untimely born, he calls himself in his writings, because he was, he was grafted into that, that ministry, but he was not with Jesus during his time. But, but Peter was. 
And some would say, of course, Peter was the number one apostle. There was never any rank given, but Peter seemed to be the leader of the group. Definitely the one who spoke the most, opened his mouth and inserted foot the most, right? But he says, I am an apostle. He's comfortable with his calling. He's comfortable with his, his authority, but he doesn't make his office bigger than it is. And you say, well, that's a pretty important office. It is. Yes, it is. But what's more important? He was an apostle of Jesus Christ. Caleb mentioned Kenya. Uh, my memory of Kenya is meeting these pastors, and I would say, what's your name? He said, well, my, my name is Apostle. My, I'm Apostle Paul, or I'm Apostle, you know, Joseph, or whatever. And, and real big on titles. And, and Peter says, no, I'm an apostle, but I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone. I'm just one of the living stones that's being fit together as the church, as the body of Christ. It's all about him. It's not about me. It's Jesus Christ who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Later, Peter will tell them and us that we can rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter's writing from Babylon. You say, what? Where's that? I don't see that in the text. It's in the last chapter, very last part. He's writing from Babylon. Well, you know Babylon didn't exist then. Babylon's a code word for what city? What New Testament city? Where were the bad emperors? Right, Rome. This is a code word for Rome. Peter is in Rome, and he's writing from Rome. Perhaps he, he, he uses Babylon perhaps to, to remind his readers, his listeners, that, hey, I'm in exile too, right? Even though I'm in the most, biggest, most populous and most powerful city in the world, I'm in exile because I'm a displaced person. I'm in a place that hates Christ, when was this? The year is estimated around 63 A.D. We don't know for sure. Now, some dated at 65. I was reading in one, one commentary, they said 65. But it seems to me that if he wrote it in 65, that was the heyday of Nero's persecution of the Christians. 64 and 65, Nero really ramped up his persecution. He was burning Christians at the stake. He was letting them be devoured by the lions. You know why they, they call the arena, you know, the Roman Colosseum, which Cindy and I were blessed to see a couple of years ago, the Roman Colosseum, the, the, the floor of it is called the arena. And that's a Latin word that means sand. Why would they call the arena sand? Because the floor of the Roman Colosseum was sand. To do what? Soak up the blood, right? And so, so if, if, if he was writing in 64, when he gets to chapter 2 and he says, be subject to all authorities, including emperors, it seems to me Peter would have said, yeah, and even Nero, even that evil man Nero. He doesn't mention him. Most believe that Peter, the early church fathers, in fact, were unanimous in their belief that Peter was crucified upside down as, as uh, the story goes, and we don't know that for sure. He wasn't worthy, he said, to be crucified like his Lord, so they, he asked to be crucified upside down. But he was crucified one way or the other uh, by Nero in 64 AD. That's generally the consensus among historians. Guess who else was killed in 65 by Nero, 64 by Nero? It's believed that Paul, the apostle, was also beheaded. Why was he beheaded and not crucified? Because he was a Roman citizen. They said, you know what, we're going to do you a favor. We're going to kill you, but we're going to let you be beheaded. We're going to make it quick. So it's, it's believed that he was writing in 63, and that leads us to the readers. Notice that he starts off with, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. 
Another word for dispersion is diaspora. You've seen that word, diaspora, however you want to pronounce it, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, the diaspora, right? This was a term that was described, that, that used, used to describe the Jews in the 6th century when they were driven out of Jerusalem by Babylon. They were dispersed by the conquering army of the Babylonian Empire. That was the first dispersion, if you will. And this is the latter dispersion. But notice, interestingly, Peter doesn't mention anything here about race, about ethnicity, or language. Things we get all worked up about and, and, and spend, you know, argument time about. Race, ethnicity, or language. He doesn't do that. He says, no, no, no. I'm writing to you elect exiles. He doesn't mention anything except for their status in Christ, which is, and ours is, elect exiles. And in fact, we think that these were mostly Gentiles. Based on verse 18, they were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from their forefathers. They did not have a a covenant. They didn't come from the covenant of Judaism. But Peter greets these Gentiles as God's chosen people. In chapter 2, we'll see this. He, he said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. I mean, you read that, that phrase and you go and read that on the street. People who know anything about history and anything about the Old Testament will say, oh, that's talking about the Jews, right? They were the chosen race. They were the royal priesthood. They were a holy nation, Israel. They were a people for his own possession. Yes, they were. But he came to his own. His own did not receive him. And so he grafted in the Gentiles. And that was God's plan all along. We saw that in the book of Genesis. So God, from the very beginning, was going to save a people. And they were going to be people who were elect from the beginning, before the beginning. And they would be from every tribe and every tongue and every nation Every, every uh, uh, ethnicity, and they are the body of Christ for which Jesus will return. They are exiles, elect exiles, and so are we. We live among a people, and we live in a culture <clears throat> that is not native to us now because we are now citizens of heaven. Now, I know this is, a, this is just an example of language, but I'm reminded of this so often at Elon. You know, when I, well, I can't keep up with 18 to 21-year-old vernacular. You know, when I was growing up, sick was a bad thing. I mean, we felt bad for our friends who were sick. I never knew anything about a sick movie or a sick song. Nasty was that guy sitting next to you in the cafeteria. He threw up on the table, right? That was nasty. Not when he tomahawk dunked, you know, in the playground. And dope, that was something we were told to stay away from. Either that stuff, you know, in jest or, or that guy who's not very bright. Stay away from dopes or dope, right? Who knew that dope would be cool? Or is it rad? I think rad is gone. Never mind. Look, that's just a small example. The language sometimes keeps us on the outside. Well, we're on the outside in this world because of a lot more than language. Amen? We talked about, again, Brent did a, did a great job this morning talking about the enemy of our souls He came to kill, steal, and destroy. And his whole motive, his whole modus operandi is to use the culture around us to push us away from God, not towards it, towards him. 
And so we are elect exiles living between two worlds, passing through this one while living for the glory of Christ by the grace of God so that others, Peter will say later, may see the hope that is within us and ask us about it. Glorious passage in 1 Peter 3. I like to say we are living in God's witness rejection program. And that's not a problem for him at all, is it? Look at the four phrases that Peter uses to describe the position of the elect. Look at it in verse 1. Verse 2, I'm sorry. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, we're going to go through these one at a time, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood. Isn't it interesting to notice that Peter is a Trinitarian? In the first century, he didn't have to wait till the fourth century for the guys to write the Nicene Creed so he could say, oh, do you mean that there's one God, but he's three persons, and they're all God, and they're all equal? He knew that because of Scripture. We know that from even from the Old Testament. We know that, right? So he's a Trinitarian. He already believed in the one triune God. So let's, let's look at these questions and answer them. Why and how are we elect? First, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now what that means, saints, is those who are God's elect were chosen before the foundations of the world. The SV Study Bible says this, Foreknowledge of God does not merely refer to God's foreknowing that they would belong to Him, but also means that He set His covenantal affection on them in advance, foreordaining that they would belong to him. David Guzik writes, election is not election at all if it's only a cause and effect arrangement basing God's choice only on man's. Okay, I've said this before, but God didn't look down the corridor of time and said, oh, Bob chose to follow me. All right, well, he's part of my body. He's part of my family then. God was there first. God chose us. He found us. We were lost. He wasn't. We don't find God. No one seeks after him. Romans 3. Not one. Not one. God finds us. That means that you were the object of God's loving concern from all eternity. He loved you even before he formed you in your mother's womb. Another quote, Edmund Clowney says, The mystery of God's choosing will always offend those who stand before God in pride. Forgetting their rebellion and guilt against God, they're ready to accuse Him of favoritism. But those whom God's love has drawn to Christ will always confess the wonder of His initiative in grace. God took the initiative to draw us. Does that mean we don't have any responsibility whatsoever in our relationship with God? Everybody said, absolutely not, right? God gave you the gift of faith to believe But you have to believe. You have to walk in in faith. You have to follow Him by His grace. You have to appropriate His grace to love your neighbor as yourself, to do the things He's called us to do. Those are evidences of what we will see next. We are not only elect according to the foreknowledge of God, we are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. Those whom God's calls, Paul says, were predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now think about that phrase. We were predestined not to just be part of the family, just hang around and say, oh, yeah, I know Jesus, but whatever. I'm, you know, 
I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I'm going to live my life my own way. No, no, no. You're, conf- you're predestined to be conformed to his image. That's the process of sanctification that happens while we're living here between two worlds. That's the work in the hands of the Holy Spirit. So think about it. This is the Trinity at work. God, the Father, who is the, if you listen to the podcast, Knowing Faith, they talk about God being the eternal unsent one. He's the eternal Father in heaven. And God sent His Son. Jesus is the eternal sent one, sent to save us. And then God and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to sanctify us. And Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, but when the helper comes, that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. You see that? There it is. Jesus sends him and the Father sends him. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit lives in us and we are being sanctified by Him. This work of sanctification happens over time. And again, it's a proof that we belong to the Father. We start to look more like Him. We start to look more like Jesus. Remember years ago when we were still meeting on Elon's campus, we met there for nine years every Sunday morning. We had a worship service. And I remember one Saturday, and I've told this story before, but one Saturday, a bunch of us were there and we were going through the campus and handing out flyers and inviting students to come. And we were dividing into, divided into groups of two or three. And my oldest son, Micah, was not with me. He was with another group. And he told me later, he said, Dad, I, you know, I was handing out a flyer. And the student said, are you related to Mark Fox? He said, yeah, he's my dad. He said, I thought so, man. You look just like him. I had to apologize to Micah later for that. I said, son, you can, you can, you can do better. But, but the point is, that he looks like the Father just as we are being conformed in the image of his Son. He's making us, the Holy Spirit is making us by grace, through faith, through good works, through studying and, and reading and understanding and following the Scriptures, through the fellowship of the body of Christ, through prayer. He's making us more, look more and more like Jesus. We'll never look exactly like Jesus, but he's conforming us to his image, sons and daughters of the king. Not only that, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. The obedience starts with the faith we received as as a gift from God to believe on God, believe on Him and, and His Son. And Paul talked a lot about that even in his greeting to the church in Rome. He said, we, the apostles, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's part of the, the purpose of this church is that the leaders have been called and all of us have been called to this, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. That's why we're here, to learn more and more how to be Jesus to the world, to be like him, to serve him, to obey him so that others might say, I want to know the one that you know. Who is this Jesus? Tell me about him. You know, it's like Peter saying to these elect exiles, you were chosen by God, and you're being sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. But look, you have the triune God with you, working on you, living in you, walking with you, helping you to stand, and promising you an inheritance 
as Scott will talk about next week, an inheritance that our imaginations cannot even begin to understand. And so walk, so stand, so obey by faith. And somebody says, well, how can we do that? Well, we have the Spirit, and He helps us to do it, but we also have been sprinkled with His blood. You'll see Peter use some Old Testament references throughout this book, and I love this. I think it's perhaps to give these Gentiles, who probably have no understanding of the tree from which they have been gra- into which they have been grafted, to give them an understanding of their heritage of faith, the Old Covenant. So you'll see Peter using some examples of this. Now, the only time that we see in the book of Exodus where blood was sprinkled on people, not just on the altar, but on people, are in these two passages. In Exodus 24, to confirm the covenant. Moses was told by God to do this, and so he sacrificed, and all the people were gathered there, and, and, and then he threw the blood against the altar, and then the people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. All right, And then Moses took the other half of the blood and threw it on the people and said, Because, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. Now listen, that's a heavy weight and a joyful weight at the same time to know that we do all we do because of and by the power of the blood of Christ. Not the blood of some lamb in the Old Testament. That was pointing to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So it's by the blood of Jesus, our Savior, that we can stand. When all all else around us are falling away from the faith, we can stand because we stand in Christ. It's by the blood of that covenant. But even then, you know, even more than that, or not more than that, but in addition to that, in Exodus 29, Moses took the, the Aaron and his priest, the first, you know, the first priest, if you will, the Aaronic priesthood, according to God's command, and he was told to take blood and sprinkle it on these guys and their garments. And he said, he and his garments, God said, he and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. So there's a picture here of being sprinkled with the blood so that we are not only cleansed, but we are also called into something. I'll show you this picture. Last week we baptized eight children and young adults in the parking lot in our cattle trough. It was a wonderful thing, and this was not one of them. This was several years ago. Jerry's with the Lord now, Jerry Shouse. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it, Dick? Jerry Shouse, he came up out of there screaming and yelling uh, praise. But... That's a, that's a picture of what, what Peter's referencing here, right? Baptism doesn't save anyone. We're already saved. We can't be baptized until we've been saved. But once you're saved, then you get baptized and you get washed in this water to point us back and to remind us that we've been washed in the blood of Jesus and made believers and children of God. And we've com- been commissioned to go into all the world and make disciples for His name. We've been called to be priests a royal priesthood, sons and daughters of the king. That's who we are. That's what we're called to. And this book is going to open up that understanding for us as we go through it. Finally, Peter ends his greeting with this. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a a great way to end a service of worship, isn't it? Or sign a card to someone. Or speak to someone 
we love in Christ. May the grace of God, which you have through Christ, and the peace of God, which you have in Christ, be poured out upon you in greater and greater measures. And all of God's people said, Father, we're thankful for this book. We're thankful for Peter and his ministry. Mostly, we're thankful for Jesus, the Son of God, who died, the Lamb of God, died to make us into a body of Christ. Those who were called from before the foundations of the world, who were cleansed and who were commissioned to be sons and daughters of the King, going into every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group in this community and in the nations uh, beyond on the other sides of the earth as we're given opportunity to bring them the good news of the gospel. And Lord, help us to live that good news, not just when we're telling somebody who's lost, but live that good news in and among the people of God who are saved, our brothers and sisters in Christ who are seated around us right now, that you might be glorified in this fellowship. And we will give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. Antioch meets every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. at 1600 Powerline Road in Elon, North Carolina. For more information about Mark and the books he's written, go to jmarkfox.com.